The Daily Rios Digest, Volume 2, Saturday, June 10th, 2023. Rios, you seriously really need to sell this. Hey everybody, this is your host Peter, with the 49th Digest of this second volume, covering Monday, June 5th through Friday, June 9th, 2023. Marvel Saga Monday, Part 25, taking a look at the final chapter the final issue of Marvel Saga, the official handbook of the Marvel Universe. Issue 25 went on sale September of 1987. Your writer and researcher, Peter Sanderson. On the cover, the caption reads, At last, the origin of the Silver Surfer. And this cover, once again, is truly a wraparound cover, which we've been missing for a few issues, and it is done by Art Adams and Steve Lealoha, which I was like, whoa, I don't think I would have recognized this as an Art Adams cover. So you have Galactus on the back cover, and then he is reaching forward towards the front cover, his hands blazing with energy, and that's where you have the Silver Surfer emerging from his palm, riding his board. They even use the Silver Surfer title logo, uh, the design for that, which I'm assuming comes from the 1987 series that began with Steve Englehart and Marshall Rogers. That title was up to issue six by the time this issue of the saga was released. By the way, the Marvel Corner Box, let's talk about that for a second. On this issue, it looks like they pulled a John Buscema Silver Surfer image, but I wanted to mention that I totally missed the Corner Box for Marvel Saga issue 24. And when I look at that, I realized it's the planet Earth with a chunk of it missing as if someone took a bite out of it. And that issue 24 cover features Galactus, so that is apropos. I thought that was funny, and I can't believe I missed it last time around. Stories in this issue come from Fantastic Four 49, Silver Surfer 1 from the Volume 1, and Supervillain Classics number 1. There is new art in this issue, although, again, I have no idea where, by Hector Colazzo, Steve Busoletto, and Phil Lord. So let's jump in. There is no uh, title for this issue. Uh, we just jump right in. Pages 1 through 6, we get the transformation of Norrin Rad into the Silver Surfer uh, from his first issue in 1968. The splash page, uh, I am assuming, is new art. This connects us to the ending of the previous issue, where Norrin Rad actually meets Galactus, and the saga reminds us that Norrin once wished for the return of an age of heroism on his planet for a great challenge to test his spirit. And they mention that he was about to be replaced by Galactus's slave, the Shining Silver Surfer. That's an interesting word, slave. Uh, I've never read this first issue from Silver Surfer Volume 1, but we get uh, a bunch of interesting sequences uh, that the saga shows us, such as 
Galactus trying to explain his situation. I have no wish to harm any who exist. If your own life depended upon stepping on an anthill, you would not hesitate. If some must fall so that Galactus may endure, it is lamentable. It is not always, is it not always the ants who fall? So he is aware, he is aware of his situation, but he realizes it's just the course of things, which speaks to many, many issues I've read, either with the character or people talking about the character that pretty much falls in line. And it's Galactus that comes up with a solution uh, during this sequence where he says to Norrin, had I had, uh, had I a herald, then many worlds such as this would I spare. Because of Norrin's nature, and as the saga states, because of how Galactus sees his former self in Norrin, they decide to strike a deal, and Norrin becomes the Silver Surfer, and we get these amazing John Buscema pages from Silver, Silver Surfer number one. There's even a panel that looks like it could have come out of 2001, A Space Odyssey, but that was only released a little more than a month prior to when this issue of Silver Surfer was released. But when you look at that panel and the coloring in it, it really does remind me of 2001. Norrin, uh, let's see, Norrin's body has been completely encased in a life-preserving silvery substance of Galactus's creation. Those are Galactus's words. It can withstand the cold of space, the heat of suns, even the lack of oxygen, and then of course, Galactus creates his board. It's totally hokey, right? But yet there is such an air of drama around these pages that it works, right? He's a he's writing a surfboard, but yet it works because of the time that would that it was in, because of um, the dramatic nature that Stan Lee and company bring to the character and bring to these pages. It totally works. Now I am assuming at this point. The, uh, in 1987, the notion that there were heralds before Norrin haven't yet played out. The one I'm thinking of is Fallen Angel. That was introduced in the 2000s. There certainly have been plenty of heralds after Silver Surfer, but I guess uh, in these early stages, it really was that Silver Surfer was the first. Pages 7 and 8. Before his long journey through space... Silver Surfer says goodbye to Shalabal, his love on Zenla. These panels definitely take on a romance book angle, right? If those first pages were cosmic drama, this is definitely romance, cosmic romance, I guess you could say. Uh, he says that he wants his people to not be so complacent. Shalabal wants to go with him, but Surfer says, Where soars the Silver Surfer... There must he soar alone, as he uses his arm to block his face from the sadness on his face as he departs. Ah, such drama. If I'm remembering right, that was something Stanley wanted with the character, this sense of longing, deeply introspective, you know, this sense of uh, just detachment. Uh, the saga, though, states here, that Galactus would do something to Norrin's mind over the years as he was his herald to create a sense of disdain 
for ordinary mortal beings. So maybe that's why he has his detachment, you know? Again, I don't know if that was something that was there from the beginning or something that the saga is bringing to it um, because of later stories. But we will come back to this uh, in a little bit. I do love this one line here. It says, While infinity beckons, I must leave behind my very heart. So back in 2016, in one of my many manic ideas to read everything about a certain subject, I wanted to read uh, a whole bunch of Jonathan Hickman books because we were getting ready for the Infinity event at Marvel. So then I was like, all right, let me look backwards. And as I do, I took that approach way too far. Uh, Not only did I want to read Hickman books, I wanted to read the whole Infinity Gems saga. Then I was like, let me read every Thanos appearance. And eventually I was like, why don't I read all of Marvel Cosmic, including Galactus and other things? And I called it The Road to Infinity. And I managed to only do two site posts on that very topic. Now, ultimately, what I was keying in on was Marvel's use of the word infinity as a way to tie it to the event that was coming out in 2016. I started with the Galactus trilogy, which we're going to talk about later in this segment. And I also did this man, this monster, but then I didn't continue on. Um, But I now see I should include Silver Surfer because we got that little bit of dialogue that includes the word infinity. And we're going to see other um, examples of that as we continue on. If DC has a trademark on Crisis, it feels like Marvel should have a trademark on Infinity. Pages 9 through 13 take us back to the present where this all began last issue, namely with the Fantastic Four learning from the Watcher about Galactus, learning about the Silver Surfer. They finally meet him. Galactus arrives on tap on top of the Baxter building, of course, still sporting the big G on his chest. Uh, he's not as tall as he would be in later appearances. His first appearance, he's maybe 20 feet, right? He doesn't seem that much taller than the thing. Uh, he talks with Uatu. There's familiarity there about Uatu's pledge of non-interference, about his power, Uh, I liked that considering that last saga issue, we saw that one of the other Watchers was there when Galactus was being um, born again in our universe. Instead of ants, Galactus refers to the people of Earth as puny human gnats. He starts constructing the tech that he needs to consume Earth and then states, all that will remain shall be for me to search the cosmos once more until I have found another such planet as I have done for all these ages. Now that makes me just realize that, you know, okay, so Alex Ross's idea for why Galactus was consuming planets in the Earth X line of books totally makes a lot of sense. Because this is a cosmos, right? There are a number of planets that he must be able to come across because, you know, space is infinite, right? Why is he having such a hard time finding planets? Why should it take so long to find one? So what Alex Ross and company came up with, this whole different idea behind it, which I won't spoil, is pretty great. It kind of gives reasoning for why he is being so specific about certain planets, right? 
Um, we'll come back to this in a bit. Uh, one last thing about these pages on the second to last panel on page 13. As Reed and Ben are ready to take the fight to Galactus once more, Sue wants to go with, but Reed wants her and Johnny to stay behind just in case they fail. And he says, it's an order, lady. And I was like, well, there it is. There, you know, those Marvel men berating their loved ones because Marvel men suck. Anyway, all right, so pages 13 through 17, more conversation with Uatu the Watcher and the Fantastic Four, this time about how Galactus goes about devouring planets. So he has an elemental converter, that's the thing that he's constructing. The oceans go first, then cities, then he reduces the globe to a husk, and he drains Earth's fiery core. Humanity would have to have a mass exodus and only fragments would exist of the world once Galactus leaves. I talked last time around how the Galactus trilogy first came into my headcanon through Busiek and Ross in Marvels, and now that I mentioned the whole Road to Infinity blog posts, obviously I did read that original tri trilogy within the last 10 years or so. But seeing Kirby's rendition of the Elemental Converter once again here in the saga, I immediately went, wait a minute, I have seen that technology before, even prior to reading the Galactus Trilogy or seeing Marvels. Uh, so page 14 of the saga, you see the device as the Watcher is talking about it. It has this weird sort of tentacle swooping thing that sucks up all the energy. It's more or less the same design used in the 1984 Secret War series. That's where I saw it first, because uh, part of one of the story points is that Galactus is going to eat Battle World so he can go and fight the Beyonder. And if you look at Secret Wars, issue number nine, the cover, it's right there. You have all the heroes and villains going up against Galactus. It's totally the same device. Uh, and that's by Zek and company, Mike Zek. So I thought that was very cool, you know. I didn't realize that that bit of technology has been around and, and that other artists have depicted it. So uh, really, really cool to make those connections. And then we continue on to what I basically cover in those Road to Infinity posts about Uatu needing Johnny to, to traverse hyperspace beyond the final dimension curtain to a far distant galaxy and to the world ship of Galactus named Ta-2, which I love. Here it is in the saga in all of its amazing Kirby splendor. There's a lot of Infinity stuff and Marvel cosmology stuff in the journey that the Human Torch takes. You can go read my post, do a search for Road to Infinity or just the word Infinity. I'm sure it'll pop up. Pages 18 through 22... I was wondering if the saga was going to get to Alicia Masters' part in all of this, and sure enough, they do in this sequence. It's in this fateful meeting that Norrin finds the inner courage to defy his master, and it totally makes sense why the saga was pushing the notion that Galactus had done something to the surfer's mind to make him have no sympathy for organic life, because at this point in time, during the Galactus trilogy, Marvel didn't even have an origin for the Surfer. He was just 
Galactus's herald. So there was no backstory to Norrin Rad and to Shalabal and all of that. So Surfer even says to Alicia, there is a word some races use, a word I have never understood until now. At last I know beauty. So this is why the saga storytelling approach makes sense and why it's interesting because Sanderson has to juggle Surfer's inhumanity plus that line from his first appearance with what we learn about him in later comics. He has to give him a reason as to why he would think this about Alicia if he already has a love that he lost, right? He gave up Shalabal for the stars. Why would he not know the word beauty? Well, the saga says, obviously Galactus must have done something to his mind. So, you know, I don't, again, I don't know if that's exact continuity, but the saga is trying to, that's the goal of the saga, to make these things make sense. Um, it's also a bit telling that he can roam the cosmos, but it's Alicia that makes him think of beauty, N not anything he has seen out there in the stars, right? That, again, speaks to his inhumanity. Uh, the saga makes a connection between Alicia's defending of her planet to the surfer to what Norrin did in his own meeting with Galactus. I also think uh, I came up with this notion way back in one of the other sagas, where we were talking about Puppet Master and Alicia and the clay from Wondergore Mountain, in that she must have some kind of daredevil sense, um, because she is amazingly astute in her assessment of Norrin's demeanor, right? And again, she was created before Daredevil even existed. So that clay that empowers the Puppet Master must have imparted some kind of subtle power to Alicia as well. I Again, I don't know if anybody has played on that, but it would make sense. So when Surfer returns to his master, Galactus, this is where he says his anthill thing. Would you hesitate to tread upon an anthill? These creatures are of no consequence. So obviously Lee and Kirby got that into his brain first, and then Lee and Buscema would carry that over into the Silver Surfer issue. Uh, and then I wrote here, step on a fire anthill, Galactus, and then tell us how you feel. I dare you. All right, pages 23 through 28. The battle is finally wrapped up in all of its Marvel classic story beats. We have Johnny arriving back from his trip through Infinity. We have the ultimate nullifier. Great dialogue between Uatu and Galactus about the humans where Uatu says, Did not your race and mine evolve from such humble beginnings? Uatu saying what I said earlier to Galactus, and he says, There are other planets. We both know full well the, that the universe is endless. Yeah, right. Like, you know, go somewhere else, dude. Um, in many ways, that, that opening line about humanity evolving, you could continue all the way back to saga number one, the opening pages, where they talk about the very beginnings of the Earth and humanity. Uh, we have Reed giving the ultimate nullifier to Galactus so that he can leave, because the promise of Galactus is living truth itself. 
And then we have uh, a line here, how Galactus has been thwarted for the first time since the dawn of memory. But, but, he says, I bear no malice. Emotion is for lesser beings. Which I was like, what? We just went through all of this. And he's like, okay, you got me. No harm done. I'll leave. Just crazy. Uh, and then he removes the powers within the surfer to traverse space and time. He shall roam the galaxies no more. And as he departs, he sees finally in humanity a promise of greatness to lift beyond the stars or bury within the ruins of war. I do wonder if that notion was ever picked up before. Certainly you could say the premise of that um, could make up the core of a whole bunch of Marvel events, right? It's always either about humanity moving beyond where they are or there's, uh, you know, or it's just an event about a war. Think of things like Secret Wars, Civil War, Infinity War, right? But then also think about Contest of Champions, right? Like that feels, even though that's not necessarily, well, you know, in a way it was about, you know, an evolution or at least about, um, you know, uh, trying to elevate a certain group, you could say. So that could be an interesting thing to look at uh, Marvel events and see if what Galactus sees is the duality in all of those events. So Surfer gets left behind to roam Earth, and then the saga states, This day of Galactus's first defeat was a turning point in the history of the cosmos for a single man, Reed Richards, from a seemingly insignificant planet had matched his strength of will against a virtual god of destruction and had emerged triumphant. Really? Just Reed? You're giving the credit just to Reed? Not the Fantastic Four, not the Watcher, not Alicia, not Surfer? Come on. Come on, Sanderson. All right. Which brings us to the closing pages of this issue and of this series. Pages 29 through 31. A completely surprising ending to the saga that I was not expecting. It starts off with Marvel Saga catching us up on many of the characters that we've been following for 24 issues, winding up all of their unfinished business, no doubt because the series was canceled, I have to imagine, they knew that they didn't have many issues left, and there were small leftover story bits that um, were interrupted, I guess you could say, because the last three issues have been focusing on larger things, Silver Surfer, Galactus, and the wedding of... Peter Parker, and Mary Jane Watson. So we do get new art on these pages from pages 29 through 31. Again, I have no idea who actually did them. Um, and it's artwork based on Journey into Mystery 124, Tales to Astonish 74, Strange Tales 140 and 146, Daredevil 12 through 14, Avengers 19, 20, 28, and 29, Tales of Suspense 69 through 72, and also issue 80. X-Men 14 through 16, Amazing Spider-Man 33, and Fantastic Four 57, plus other, um, plus other comics that they don't list. So we get small story bits, wrapping up things like Thor's Trial of the Gods, Namor finding the trident so that he can rule Atlantis, Dormammu daring to go up against eternity and other things that we have seen before. And then Peter Sanderson tries to hit some big points 
in a way echoing what we just went through with Galactus, but with other Marvels, such as the X-Men battling the Sentinels for the first time and kicking off the anti-mutant hysteria, Spider-Man in that one issue from Amazing Spider-Man 33, where he's overcoming the immense weight of tech of tech and of debris on top of him. Um, and then again, because of the Galactus trilogy, the Marvel saga goes cosmic and skips a bunch of years, and we get things like Red Skull and the Cosmic Cube, Rick Jones and the Destiny Force during the Kree Scroll War. One last bit of promotion, as they mention Mantis and having a son, a child that would someday change the destiny of the universe, which I think was happening during the 1987 Silver Surfer series, but I'm not sure. And then, of course, how could they go through Marvel history without a mention of Dark Phoenix and the Dark Phoenix saga? And this is where things got surprising and weird in the last bit in this section, which is talking about the Celestials and how they decreed that humanity was worthy of survival. It begins with the words, and I was greatly pleased. That's the narrative. That's the narration from the saga. I, the use of the word I. And I was like, wait, what? That hasn't happened before. Then you turn, you get a last page reveal of who it is that's speaking. It's too good to spoil. It makes sense, but it's too good to spoil. It definitely put a whole new spin on the entire series, and it made me think of things like DC's History of the DC Universe, which was narrated, or connecting all the way to the Wade Rodriguez History of the Marvel Universe, which is narrated. And I was like, oh, that's cool. That's a nice little thing to do here at the end. I will leave you with this one line of dialogue in response to the defeat of Galactus, and it says uh, that that day marked the culmination of the first phase of this heroic age. And then we get some more dialogue, and then they say, this first volume of this saga of marvels. Now, come on. You can't say the word phase and not think here now in the 21st century about the phases of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, right? And if this is the first volume of the saga, how could they not do more? I totally love that. I totally love the meta aspect of it. I love that they use the word Marvels, um, which I'm sure wasn't the first time, but I love that they use that word to describe their own heroes. So, yeah, really great. Really great last few pages, and especially that last page. And then on the inside back cover, we get the, uh, well, it just says, the end. And that's it. That is it for the Marvel saga. You know, I'm always happy when I'm actually, <laughs> when I actually can finish a long-running project here on the Daily Rios, because that does not happen often, right? And I tell you what, if you really want to know what that last page is about, just email me and I will let you know. So that's it. That is it for the Marvel Saga, uh, the Monday anchor segment, well, every other mon Monday, has reached an end. And uh, I'm, I'm certainly glad that I finally got to read this series from beginning to end. And it has brought up a lot of questions. It has um, connected a lot of things in my brain, which I'm really happy for and appreciative of. So with that, we are not going to be done with the saga just yet. 
Come back in two more digests to find out why. Butterfly in the sky, I can go twice as high. Take a look, it's in a book, a reading rainbow. Today in History, June 6, 1983, 40 Years of Reading Rainbow. Hi there! Quite a show, isn't it? Pet show, prizes for all. If you don't have a pet, you can make one up. This is a special kind of pet show. All winners, no losers. There'll be prizes for everyone. Everything you can imagine. There'll be blue ribbons awarded for the tallest, shortest, fattest, skinniest, driest, wettest, curliest, straightest, for the rarest, most common garden variety breed. You name it, and it'll walk away with an award here today. Unless, of course, it would rather crawl, fly, or swim. Boy, what a menagerie. Come on, let's go see who's here. Some kids just can't have pets. I'm sure you know what it feels like when you want something really, really badly, but you just can't have it. And no matter what the reason is for the no, it still hurts. This is a book called Tight Times, and it's a story about a little boy who really hurts because, well, he wants some things he just can't have. Tight Times by Barbara Shook Hazel. Pictures by Trina Sharp Hyman. This morning I asked Mom, why can't I have a dog? Not now, she said, not again. And not to bother her when she's busy. So I asked Daddy, why can't I have a dog? Last year you said I could have one when I was bigger. And I'm a lot bigger, see? So why not now? Because of tight time, said Daddy. He said I was too little to understand. First you need a card, your ticket to the stacks. If you check a book out, you gotta bring it back. Look around, check it out. If you need a hand, I'll show you all the tools you need to help you understand. Check it out, check it out, check it out. Check it out. Don't shout. Check it out, check it out, check it out. Afternoon together without spending a cent. I guess it just goes to show you can have good times in spite of the tight times. All you need. Excuse me, Mister. Can you hold this? We've got to take back some books. Thanks. Sure. As I was saying, you can have good times in spite of the tight times. All you need is a little imagination. <laughs> See you next time. Butterfly in the sky. I can go twice as high. New Comics Wednesday, New Comics Wednesday recommendations for the week of June 7th, starting with Scout Comics, their Chispa imprint. We have Katrina's Caravan, 
The Night of La Latruza by Hector Rodriguez and Guillermo Villarreal, cover art by Yasmin Flores Montanez, an anthology horror series based in Latin mythology, including the mysterious figure of Dona Contrina as she sweeps into a small town with her traveling carnival and tells dark tales. This is for $5.99. From Boom Studios, we have GoGo Power Rangers Deluxe Edition Hardcover, Book 2, collecting GoGo Power Rangers 17 through 32 and GoGo Power Rangers Forever Rangers. Also, more importantly, featuring a brand new short story by Sean Pryor and George Kambadias. So this was a story, or this story was based on stuff that they had done previously with some Power Rangers stories that they were doing on their own. And now they were, uh, you know, commissioned to do this story, uh, a new story that is featured in this hardcover. So that's great. The hardcover is $75. From DC, we have Wonder Woman Historia, the Amazon's hardcover, collecting the three-issue Black Label series by Kelly Sue DeConnick, Phil Jimenez, Gene Ha, Nicola Scott, and company. It is a gorgeous book. Uh, I have the individual issues. I did not get the hardcover. I want to get the hardcover for the uh, Phil Jimenez cover um, that is not just the Wonder Woman. It's the other one that has all the Amazons on it. I really want to get that at some point. We also have Flash 800, a celebration of Wally West, concluding the Jeremy Adams run, and also featuring Mark Wade, Joshua Williamson, Jeff Johns, a whole bunch of artists, and a prelude to the September Dawn of DC relaunch, which will be under Simon Spurrier and Mike Diodato Jr. Poison Ivy 13, that is the issue where that title joins the Dawn of DC branding. We have G. Willow Wilson and again a handful of artists and they are bringing the character back to Gotham City. And then Steelworks, one of six, by Michael Dorn and Sammy Basri, spinning out of Action Comics, also under the Dawn of DC branding. Uh, real curious to read that to see what a Michael Dorn comic, written comic, feels like, right? Yeah. All right, there you go. Those are your recommendations for the week of June 7th. Let's kick off a new segment this week focusing on uh, a little bit of an email that was sent from Mike Atchison that I believe I read in one of the previous Feedback Fridays, but I'll read it again here. Uh, he says, how about a crisis capsule, something that has current relevant to crisis on infinite Earths? Could be anything from an homage cover to a bit of crisis trivia. I adore that idea. I think that's really a lot of fun and uh, is a topic that obviously, first of all, is near and dear to my heart, but is one that could uh, easily be a recurring segment, you know, maybe, I don't know, three, four, five, every three, four, five digests, because there is a lot of 
Um, there, there's a lot of companies, there's a lot of um, attention to that original event, uh, even now, all these many decades later. And, um, you know, I do the crisis tapes with Adam, but we don't come out with those frequently. And um, so to try to do all of what Mike is saying on those episodes, it would just take too long. And then we would have to go through a whole list of things. But this way I could, you know, whenever I see something that is crisis related, I could bring it here to uh, the digest or, you know, to future digests. And that way it doesn't necessarily take away from the crisis tapes because I'm not covering what we're supposed to be covering on that podcast. But this is a great way to uh, spotlight and to show just how important that original event was, right? Here we are, all these many years later. So, So I have a number of different topics for this first segment. And Mike called it a crisis capsule. I thought about calling it a crisis corner. Uh, If I take a title from issue number 11 of the original series, uh, I could call this like crisis aftershock because that title was aftershock. So we'll see. We'll see what what I'll name this. Um, I've always liked the phrase, I am a crisis kid. Uh, That is something that has come up during the whole crisis tapes conversation about those of us who were there while crisis uh, was coming out. I believe the person that coined that phrase was, I think the name was AJ Campos. I believe that's uh, if my memory is correct. Anyway, all right. So here are your topics. There is a, yet again, another Crisis 7 homage cover. This is coming from Vault Comics out this week, actually. Money Shot Comes Again, issue number two, by Tim Seeley, Giselle Legacy, and company. Letters by Crank, Chris Crank of the Crankcast. Uh, as I mentioned, this is a Crisis 7 cover by Seeley. Uh, he even writes in the signature, a la Perez. And it has all the things that are on uh, the cover for Crisis 7. So you have a person holding another person. She is in the classic Supergirl pose. I don't know their names because I haven't read this series. And then at the top, it says, this is it. Money shot shocker. I believe on the original cover, it says, this is it. Double-sized shocker. And then it says, Crisis of Infinite Climaxes. And it has the classic Crisis crisis logo font. Even the Vault logo looks like the DC Comics 50th anniversary uh, bullet with the banner. And there's a red sun in the background behind the two main characters. All All of the background has the feeling of that original seven cover. Uh, with uh, the the different tiers that all the heroes are standing on. However, the background characters remind me of Uncanny X-Men 136, since they are larger than the background covers that show up on the Perez cover. Um, But it is still meant to evoke crisis number seven. And so I absolutely need this. $4.99. I don't know how I missed it. They probably didn't have a cover image in previews at the time of solicitation. Otherwise, I would have ordered it because I've certainly ordered many others that were referencing that cover. 
Um, and that's something I see a lot in previews every now and then. You're like, oh, yep, there's another cover that is calling towards the crisis. There was one even for the Sumerian title that came out many, many, I think a couple of years ago. So that's awesome. That's awesome. All right. Secondly, from Todd McFarlane Toys, they are putting out an anti-monitor mega figure from Crisis on Infinite Earths from their DC Multiverse line. It is the second look that Perez designed for the Crisis, the one that, well, reminds me of a whale. Uh, it has, it's mostly blue and silver with yellow tubes all over the place. There have been other versions. DC directed a version in 2006. Mattel did a version in 2009, part of the DC Universe Infinite Heroes. It was a San Diego exclusive. It was only three and three-fourths, a three and three-fourths figure size. And apparently there's an Eagle Moss lead figurine of this specific look as well. It looks pretty good. It looks pretty detailed and uh, I don't know when it's going to release. They just put out a first look. On Twitter, I saw a tweet by Dennis Culver, who is the writer for Unstoppable Doom Patrol. This was on June 2nd, and it was a link to a uh, article on Gizmodo, and it says hundreds of one-dimensional strands found lurking in our galaxy's core. And then it continues, light years long filaments perpendicular to those previously discovered are sprouting from the supermassive black hole Sagittarius A at the galaxy's center. The tendrils measure 5 to 150 light years in length, and now a team of scientists have found filaments that stretch out parallel to the galactic plane surrounding the supermassive black hole at the galaxy's center like fingers on a splayed hand. And then Dennis wrote, Marv Wolfman and George Perez got their first first in Crisis on Infinite Earths, showing the classic hand surrounding the universe uh, that is at the center of DC cosmology. Now, I know this is all in fun. I'm sure Culver knows his Crisis lore, but obviously, no, Marv Wolfman and George Perez did not create that look. That goes all the way back, I think, to 1965, Green Lantern, Volume 2, Issue Number 40, Secret Origin of the Guardians by John Broom, Gil Kane, Sid Green, Gaspar Saladino. This is Alan Scott and Hal Jordan teaming up. Um, they had met before, but Alan Scott meets the Guardians. He learns about the origins of not only the Guardians of the Universe, but the DC Universe and possibly a little bit more about his own power. And it is the first appearance of Krona. Krona wanting to go look towards the origins of the universe. And that is where you see the hand surrounding, you know, the infant stars that would make up our our universe. Um, I say that I think that's the first time they've used that imagery because I don't know I'm not 100% certain that that's the first time I, I have to imagine it is because that very concept is such a DC thing and it has certainly been used and created and recreated many times after I certainly haven't read all of DC comics and I haven't read all of the DC comics prior to 1965 at least not yet so um yeah 
So we'll go with, you know, that being the first time. I'm sure it is. Uh, I also saw somewhere in a comment somewhere, you know, don't ever read the comments, right? Um, that someone was like, oh yeah, Marv Wolfman and George Perez read all of DC Comics to prepare for Crisis on Infinite Earths. That's not, definitely not true. That belongs to Peter Sanderson, who, you know, that's a name you might recognize from the Marvel Saga segments. Peter Sanderson was the one who was hired to read all of DC Comics to write notes, to make connections, and those notes were uh, then given to the creative team. So, uh, Next up, something not exactly crisis-related, but certainly DC event-related. So this comes from Entertainment Weekly with uh, an interview with Eric Wallace, the showrunner for The Flash, and he was talking about now that Flash has ended with season uh, 9, all of, th- all of the things that he could not fit into that final season. And in his mind, he was hoping to plan out seasons 9 and 10. He wanted the show to end on episode 200, but Grant Gustin, who plays The Flash, said that season 9 was going to be his last. So one of his big ideas was to start and create and do the CW version of Blackest Night. He says here, back in season eight, we set up the Blackest Night storyline with Death Deathstorm. When Deathstorm was defeated, the emotional vibrations went all the way back to the netherverse and another dimension to Necron, who's right out of the comic books. I wanted to have one final big, huge, epic crossover, getting everybody, if you're on a show or not, back together for that storyline. What that would have allowed me to do is bring back characters that are dead. Wallace intended to bring characters from The Flash, Superman and Lois, as well as Titans and Stargirl. The idea was to get them all together to stop Necron and all his Black Lanterns, which I'm sure Jeff Johns would have loved because it's his creation. He also said he wanted to do Despero. Uh, He wanted to go back to the whole John Diggle finding whatever that green thing is in a box and then eventually even do a storyline entitled The Forever War. So so we would have gotten uh, The Blackest Night on the CW show. I think Blackest Night would have been very bold, especially in a universe where you don't have Green Lantern, unless the idea was, okay, let's bring the Green Lanterns into the Arrowverse during this crossover, which could have been cool, but that would have been uh, you know heavy lifting. And finally, finally, especially this week, with what's going on with the Canadian wildfires and pictures coming out of New York, is it any wonder why there's been a lot of geeks out there pointing their cameras to the sky and saying, oh no, red skies over New York? I guess the anti-monitor is coming next. So yeah, a lot of craziness going on with the wildfires, um, with the smoke. Please be safe. Um... You know, the pictures are funny, the references are funny, but, you know, certainly not a not a laughing matter. So there you go, your first installment of this Crisis Capsule, Crisis Corner, Aftershock, I Am a Crisis Kid, whatever it's going to be. Incredible. Action. Astonishing. Adventure. The coolest heroes. The hottest heroines. And the most outrageous in the universe. These ain't your daddy's comic books, fanboy. For Sale Friday. 
going to throw out some shameless promotion here, uh, a shameless call to you, the listeners. Uh, as summer has rolled on, as, as you know, uh, time has rolled on since I didn't go back to teaching, things are getting tight. Uh, my um, savings is dwindling. I've been helping my sister. Uh, she has a store that I help her out with. Um, that has been helping. I've been teaching online. That's helping too. I've even applied to a few jobs, but haven't heard anything. So I thought, you know what? Let me go back to uh, trying to sell more of my collection. Um, I had an offer recently, which was a pretty great idea. I'm not going to say from who. I don't know if they want want to stay anom- anonymous. Um, where they just reached out on the whim. This was a while back, uh, and said, "Hey, how about sending me?" this number of comics for this amount of dollars. Basically, it was a dollar per comic book. They were like, go through your collection, DC, Marvel, and um, surprise me. And it was a lot of fun doing that, actually. And I, I went through and I, I would, you know, I got some single issues, duplicates that I had, some specials, some miniseries I was able to pass along. And it was a generous amount, so I, I threw shipping in. Um, um, based on just that amount of the comics. And I, as I said, I was going through my collection and I was like, oh yeah, this would be great to send. I think they would like this, they would like that. And I want to offer that up to everyone. Um, because, you know, short of doing the Patreon, which I'm hoping will begin by the time the anniversary rolls around, I don't ever like to call for straight donations. Like, I, I think um, it's much more fun to receive something in return. And I think this is a great way to do that. You could, if you're someone who likes paper, you could send me an email and say, hey, I'm very interested in DC, these characters, these creators, or these publishers, maybe if it's not, you know, just one publisher. And, um, you know, if you pass along a donation, I can match that donation to comic books. So, um you know, tell me a publisher, tell me a character, tell me a creator. And the other thing I, I made sure that I did with that particular person, um, because it was such a generous amount, was that I made sure to include uh, a few comics that should they choose to flip them, they would definitely make their money back more so if they slabbed them. Um, and I still have uh, a few things here and there that are, are probably of value. And I would make sure to, while they last, throw throw in one or two things that, you know, should you, it's almost like, it's almost like donating and then getting a tax write-off, right? Like that would be sort of your tax write-off. Like here's an issue I think could be, could maybe give you some of your money back, you know? Um, so yeah, I think this would, could, could be a fun way to, number one, uh, if you're someone who's uh, of the mind, if you want to help out. Uh, that would be great. Uh, I'm not looking for this to be a fundraiser, certainly not like the laptop thing. I don't need much to live, you know, month to month. Certainly, once I get the Patreon going, um, that will be a, a huge help because, as I said, I'm still making money. I'm just, you know, this is, uh, I'm finding that as I look ahead, um, my collection is definitely a way to um, support what I need and it's helping me because then I get rid of things right like that's ultimately the goal so as I said if you're of the mind and and you would like to help out um, I think this one-to-one thing could be a lot of fun if it's a certain generous amount I can as I said um, 
I could throw shipping in to the amount or maybe pay half if it's if it's a smaller donation. Um, you're helping me monetarily. You are definitely helping me to get rid of my collection. And I think it could be fun to see, you know, what what you would want. And I'm sure among my many, many, many comics and maybe even some of my magazines or some of my other memorabilia, I might have stuff that would be fun to get. So it's kind of like getting one of those little packages that I know people do for Patreon on some of their tiers, but they usually wait. Like they usually wait like, oh, you know, if you if you're a Patreon for six months, you'll get a package. And it's like, eh. no, if you donate and you're willing to, you know, if it's a small donation and you're willing to pay the shipping as well, or if it's a much larger donation and I can help out with the shipping or cover it completely, that should be like per every donation you get something. So um, I also have a list of trades that I want to post online. Uh, most of those trades are being sold for $5. Um, I even, once I was looking through like comics that I would want to sell now that I'm done with Wednesday comics, now that I'm done with the Marvel saga, like I'm, I'm like, yeah, I could get rid of those. I don't need those anymore. Um, and as I said, I don't ever want to do these donation things without giving something back, which is something that you'll see once we get to the Patreon. So yeah, this was a really fun idea that, like I said, the person had. And um, if that's something, like I said, if you still like paper comics, this could be a fun way to get some things. So uh, in lieu of all that, please share, please retweet, please leave feedback on your favorite podcast catcher. Those are all ways that help to grow the show. And that is ultimately what I'm looking forward, uh, looking to do as well. All right, that closes out this uh, shameless promotion just once again to try to get rid of my books. <laughs> uh, email me, peter at thedailyrios.com. Follow the website, uh, The Daily Rios, and the Instagram, The Daily Rios. Go to Twitter, Peter J. Rios. Follow me on your favorite podcast catcher. I am on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, and Spotify. Send me some book club recommendations. This has been The Daily Rios, episode 621 for Saturday, June 10th, 2023. Talk to you soon. North winds blow, south winds blow, typhoons, hurricanes, earthquakes. <laughs> <laughs>